So from that standpoint, you can categorize proteins with respect to their digestibility and their amino acid score. In general, animal proteins a little bit higher than plant proteins. So, you know, what, what do you appear because says, oh, if you're on plant proteins, you're getting inferior quality proteins. Well, the simple answer is you just have to eat a little bit more plant protein. Welcome to the Proof Podcast, a space for science-based conversation exploring the health and longevity benefits that come with mastering nutrition, physical exercise, mindfulness, recovery, sleep, and alignment. Facts, nuance, and trustworthy recommendations, minus the hyperbole. Hi friends, great to be here with you. I'm your host, Simon Hill. I'm a qualified physiotherapist and nutritionist with an undergraduate science degree and a master's in the science of human nutrition. Today I sit down for the second time with Dr. Stuart Phillips. Stuart is a professor in kinesiology and graduate faculty in the School of Medicine at McMaster University. He's widely recognized as one of the leading researchers in the world interested in skeletal muscle health and healthy aging. In our last episode, which was episode 190 for those who missed it, Stuart and I spoke about the importance of fitness and resistance training for healthy aging, what protein is and why it's important for building muscle, how amino acids work what an optimal protein intake looks like, the importance of protein source, animal versus plant, and a bunch of other things. In today's exchange, we tie off on a few extra things I wanted to ask about protein. Protein distribution over a day and if this is worth considering. Whether protein consumption around a workout is important. More on the protein quality discussion and specifically the DS and PDCAS scoring systems that you'll see people referring to online. Are these scoring systems suitable for people with varied diets supplying sufficient calories and total protein? We then dive into a consensus statement on supplements from the International Olympic Committee, a committee that Stuart is a part of. Here we cover nitrates, creatine, sodium bicarbonate, and omega-3s. Then in the last little bit of this conversation, we chat about hormones and protein synthesis, aging and muscle mass, and Stuart provides a few insights into exciting new studies on the horizon. Safe to say it's jam-packed with information. Grab your pen and paper, and please do enjoy. This is me and Dr. Stuart Phillips. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done, so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor, or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones. And I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon.
If you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 Multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains eight key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA Omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating two to three pieces of fatty fish per week, in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Hey Stuart, welcome back. I uh, trust that you've been well since our last episode, which was certainly very popular. Yeah, all good. Thanks, Simon. Thanks for having me back on. In that conversation, we spoke uh, about the importance of resistance training and staying strong for, for healthy aging. And also we spoke about the importance of protein consumption and recovery. Today, I, I thought that we could kind of build on a, a few of the things that we spoke about, go a little bit deeper and, and then also introduce a, a few new things as well. I thought it would be good to start with protein here. Last episode, you spoke about the importance of total protein when it comes to promoting our, our muscles to grow and increasing strength. And I think we, we spoke about that 1.6 gram per kilogram mark for healthy adults who are trying to optimize uh, lean muscle and strength being a sort of threshold to try and get over. And then we also spoke about the importance of increasing protein intake as people get over the age of 65 or so to about 1.2 grams per kilogram. Uh, which is a little bit higher than the kind of 0.8 gram per kilogram uh, RDI. I'd like to to get your thoughts on protein distribution. That's one thing that we didn't cover, and and whether it matters if you're having a lot of your protein, say in in one or two meals, or if you you are evenly distributing that out throughout the day. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, it's a tough one to answer uh, based on the research we have. So I'll just sort of give you, you know, my take on this is that protein stimulates muscle protein synthesis and synthesis of other proteins in a dose responsive manner. So it sort of goes up and then plateaus. So after a certain point, you can eat and digest a lot of protein. And I think a lot of people are confused when you know, we published a study where we showed that the response of muscle protein synthesis plateaued at about 20 grams of protein, which it's not a lot. Um, and everybody said, oh, well, that's all you can digest. And that mm. that's not true. The, the truth is you can digest a lot of protein. But remember that unlike carbohydrates and fats, protein, it's not a storage form of fuel. It's not burned. It's used as a substrate to build mm -hmm. protein. So 
um, you're going to have to, you know, stock some of it away to make new proteins. And then above and beyond the level of sort of making these proteins up to the maximal capacity that you have, uh, you, you need to do something to get rid of the nitrogen that's on the amino acid. And so, you know, I've always said that every organism has a mechanism. If you're a fish, you excrete ammonia out of your gills. If you're a bird, you produce uric acid. If you're a mammal, you, you make urea. Uh, and then the carbon skeleton that's left over after you've taken the nitrogen off is really, you, you either burn it or, you know, so you can use it as fuel or you turn it into glucose through mm. gluconeogenesis or, you know, through some convoluted pathways. Some of it, some of the carbon does end up in, in lipid, although it's not a direct pathway. But let's just say after that, that, um, you know, you, you have to do something with the carbon skeleton that's left over, but you can digest lots of protein. It's whether you can actually use it to make new proteins. So from that perspective, you know, if you think about it, then maybe 20 to 30 grams per meal, quote unquote, mm-hmm. is the best way to go. Now, you know, putting a little bit more nuance in that, we have done some dose per kilogram conversions in older people and younger people. And we definitely see that older people require more per kilogram on a a per meal basis to maximally stimulate muscle Mm -hmm. protein synthesis. So in the young, it's about a quarter gram of protein per kilo. And in the elderly, it's about 0.4 grams of protein per kilo. So it's about 70% greater in older, uh, at least older men. Mm -hmm. Um, We have reason to think it's the same sort of situation in uh, younger versus older uh, women. And so, you know, the, it, it's not a lot that you would think you would need to stimulate, maximally stimulate muscle protein synthesis in a given meal. Uh, I guess the rub comes is, you know, whether you need to do that at every meal. And uh, I guess the quick answer is, uh, in theory, that that would be the best approach. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, whether doing it four times a day versus say two times a day is, is better. I think then it gets pretty granular. Uh, I certainly think that say one protein containing meal per day of like all of Mm -hmm. your protein is going to be pretty inefficient compared to say three, but the experimental evidence to say that that's the case, I I don't have, it's, it's more of a theoretical Mm -hmm. uh, sort of guess if you like. So there haven't been any studies where they've compared participants with a a kind of single protein dose versus a more evenly distributed protein uh, distribution, looking at lean muscle and looking at strength? No. uh, Well, again, there have been some attempts. The study designs are pretty different so you can't really sort of bring them all together although when people have attempted to do that and i know wayne campbell's group at purdue has done a little bit of work in this area uh and at least the results of the lean mass changes don't seem to favor you know balanced distribution so i couldn't say at this point that uh it's better uh on paper and in theory it's better but Mm -hmm. maybe in reality there's not that much uh uh, different about it. But I'm just thinking about, you know, if you sat down and ate all of your daily protein requirements at one meal, I'm not sure that you're going to get the stimulation uh, for as long and it maybe to the same degree um, as you would with three evenly distributed okay. meals. But um, again, that's that's speculation on my part, I'll be honest. Okay. I want to come back to this idea that as you age, you may require more protein in a, a given meal to produce uh, a certain amount of muscle protein synthesis. And, and we'll build on that. 
before we get there, I, I'm interested, uh, aside from protein distribution, is it, is it important to, to consume protein with any other nutrients, for example, with carbohydrates? Does that affect protein utilization? Often we hear about uh, you know, people after their workout wanting to have a lot of carbohydrates in their meal as well as protein. Is there any evidence to suggest that you can increase protein utilization by consuming it with carbohydrates? Yeah, I think the practice of co-consumption of carbohydrate and protein, I mean, it makes sense. It's one of the, when I talk to athletes about why it's important to recover after exercise, I talk about three R's. It's uh, rehydration, clearly the, you know, the top one refuel, and that's the carbohydrates, and repair, which is the protein angle. Uh, so, it, it, you know, if you're going to talk about what you should do, you got to get some fluid back in, you need to get some carbs back in, you need protein. Um, that's more about, the, the carbohydrates at least, are more about restoration of, of muscle glycogen than they are of, of uh, you know, interfering or doing something to, to protein. Uh, there's been a lot of speculation around the rise in insulin and, and, and that that is somehow uh, stimulatory for protein synthesis. Mm-hmm. And the answer is it is, but you only require a small amount of insulin for that effect. And in fact, you know, consuming protein just by itself, which is, which is insulinogenic, it actually results in a, a small stimulation of insulin release, um, is going to probably put insulin into the levels where you know, adding carbohydrate on top isn't further stimulatory. The one thing that insulin does do and the process that's, you know, really exquisitely sensitive to insulin is protein breakdown. So as soon as insulin goes up, proteolysis or protein breakdown is pretty much shut off for at least for a short period of time. And then the provision of amino acids is what stimulates protein synthesis. So I, I stop short of saying you need to have carbohydrate there, it may be better, but I'm not sure it has anything to do with muscle protein synthesis or synthesis of any other protein, to be honest with you. So is that why sometimes you hear bodybuilders using exogenous uh, insulin, injecting insulin? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's ironic. Um, you know, the idea is to then, it's sort of like, you know, if the pot's boiling is that you're, you know, you're, you're keeping the lid on the pot and you're preventing you know, from boiling over excessive proteolysis. The ironic part about taking insulin is it's a, you know, it, its role in adults once you're done growing is it's a, it's a very, very potent uh, anti-lipolytic and fat promoting in terms of storage hormones. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure, you know, you're doing it for muscle, but if you're a bodybuilder, you're trying to shed body fat, that it's the most beneficial practice. Mm-hmm. I wanted to... Uh- also touch on protein quality uh, again, and and I know this came up in conversation on Twitter this week. There are yeah. these two yeah. scoring systems, and and I thought you yeah. of all people can can help us make sense of these and what their utility is, <laughs> what what their utility is perhaps yeah. not. Yeah. Uh, the DS and the PDCAS, or uh, however you prefer to say mm-hmm. them. Uh, these are typically the scoring systems, as you know, that are, that are used to determine protein quality in a particular food, be it meat or milk or tofu or protein powder, etc. Yeah. I'm interested in hearing from you, what, what are the differences between these two scoring systems? How are they designed in terms of 
uh, what they can tell us and, and, and how are the, the scores determined? Yeah, I, so, I mean, I think the simplest thing is to distill them down to two key principles, the first of which rates the digestibility of the protein itself. And so, you know, the fundamental truism, biology just, you know, this is the way it evolved, is that um, animal source proteins are more digestible than plant source proteins, predominantly because plant source proteins are fibrous in nature. They have, you know, dietary fiber it's anti-nutritional, and so it tends to block digestive enzymes. It tends to inhibit absorption. It, the, the same, I mean, all the things that make dietary fiber good are, you know, mm-hmm. that's the reason why in terms of, you know, trapping fat or preventing uh, glucose spikes and that sort of thing are anti-nutritional for protein digestion. But that's, you know, so we'll, we'll gloss over that for now. And then the second portion of the score comes down to the essential amino acid content of the protein itself. And so, you know, that's just boil the protein up, hydrolyze it, measure the amino acids. And again, animal proteins tend to come out on top. Not always, but uh, a number of them do. So, you know, the difference between the two systems, so PDCAS or the protein digestibility corrected amino acid score, you, know, you understand why we say PDCAS, or the digestible indispensable amino acid score, DIAS or DIAS, however you say it, um, are essentially very similar with the small wrinkle that uh, PD-CAS measures what we call uh, fecal nitrogen digestion. So it measures the, the fecal content of amino acids. What was realized uh, a while ago was that our, our gut microbiome and uh, lots of other sort of metabolic processes are going on in, in, in our large colon, in our large intestine, excuse me, in our colon that are changing the nitrogenous contents of the foods that are going through there. So, you know, it could be that our gut microbiome even contributes some essential amino acids, but it definitely metabolizes nitrogen. And so if you measure it as, as fecal content, you're not really getting the full picture because we don't tend to absorb amino acids from our large intestine. Sure. So the DIAS score actually measures the content of amino acids as it comes out of your ileum, which is mm-hmm. the the first proximal or the proximal portion of your intestine as opposed to the last portion of your intestine. I know like people are probably like, wow, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> uh, but let's just say is that the, the scores are, are out there. And I think it's important to remember who sets these values and where they come from. Mm-hmm. It is uh, the United Nations university, the FAO, et cetera, the WHO, and they are interested in international level nutrition. And so sure. it's not just, you know, westernized sort of societal nutrition, you know, where we've got pretty, pretty plentiful food supplies, people have means, and, and, and we can make choices, but you're getting it to food insecure regions and, and lots of other things. And you know, the, the primary places where the scores, are, I think, uh, take on some importance are uh, with kids. Um, because of the stuff that you're feeding kids. And so infant formulas are very, very conscientious around getting good PDCAS scores, good DIAS mm-hmm. scores, and that sort of thing. Um, or people in food insecure regions who don't have access to, you know, all of the types of foods that people in westernized societies would. You know, so from that standpoint, you can categorize proteins with respect to their digestibility and their amino acid score. In general, animal proteins a little bit higher than plant proteins. So you know, what, what do you pay? Because it says, oh, 
if you're on plant proteins, you're getting inferior quality proteins. Well, the simple answer is you just have to eat a little bit more mm-hmm. plant protein. Um, or you move to isolated sources of plant protein or animal protein where you've taken out the digestibility as an issue because now you've isolated the protein and now it's really just a comparison of amino acids. And the differences then become much smaller because digestibility is not an issue anymore. And you can just ingest a little bit more of one particular protein or another. Uh, and it's a little bit of a fight over scorched earth in in, in the forums that, that I see it, you know, where the fight, you know, mm-hmm. it really takes place, which is in young, healthy people who are physically active. You're actually very efficient at getting, you know, the, the mm-hmm. protein that you need digested and absorbed. And then the utility of it, because you're exercising, is actually even more efficient. So, you know, these differences that we're everybody's squabbling about become really they're in the margins. Like Mm -hmm. they're not that big of a deal uh, unless you are food insecure and relying on one or two foodstuffs for your, you know, your subsistence on a regular basis. Or uh, you're a growing kid where maybe it's it's a, you know, a bigger difference, but. You know, I I think in westernized societies where you can make choices about the protein that you eat, it's less of an issue. Um, But it exists because we have situations where it is important and, you know, we need to make considerations around what would be the protein source that we would give to these people Mm -hmm. in a food insecure region who are subsisting on a diet of predominantly, say, you know, tuberous root vegetables where they do get some protein. But not a lot. And, and for, you know, as an example, everybody said, well, who exists on that? And I said, well, go back to the potato famine and ask the Irish what a big deal it made. I mean, that was the that was the tuber that most of them ate. And yes, it didn't contain a lot of protein, but they ate a lot mm-hmm. of potatoes. And then when the crop failed, um, that, that was the cause of, you know, a tremendous famine and a lot of death. So it gives you an, an idea that, you know, even in a a fairly quote unquote developed country, uh, you can you can run into problems. I think that's a, a great summary. Just just quickly here, with regards to the the DS score, um, I'm interested in in kind of how that score is formulated. And I know you mentioned their digestibility, and you and you spoke about the application of this within uh, areas of the world where food security can be a problem and in some of those places people are getting all of their calories from a single food or, or maybe two foods mm-hmm. and and as i understand the the uh, ds uh, score looks at what's called a, a limiting amino acid and uses that to to help um come to a total kind of protein score so if we can kind of step through these two things first digestibility I'm I'm interested because I've heard very conflicting things and I thought you you've probably looked at this hmm. when when looking at digestibility uh of particularly plant proteins because as you rightly said there are these various compounds which can inhibit absorption in plants but we do know yeah. that when you properly prepare uh various plant foods soaking legumes for example and cooking them that certain nutrients become more available do have the studies that have looked at digestibility, and I think most of these are pig studies, are they using raw 
plant foods or are they using plant foods as you and I would consume them? Yeah, yeah, uh, like great questions. Um, I think there's, there's a few things to sort of unpack here. So first of all, I think we could probably all agree that the the model that we would like to do all of this in is in human beings. But what you need to do if you're going to sample the ileal compartment is somebody with an ileostomy. So they have a tube that's draining their their ileum. And, and, and you know, there's not there are some people out there with that, but not too many. And, mm-hmm. we, and we can't rely on that population. So the next closest animal that has a digestive system that resembles humans is pigs. So to your point, uh, people are working on artificial digestion systems, these sort of, you know, it's like a, a metal stomach that gets all of the same gastric juices and then mimics stomach emptying and that sort of thing. But so let's just say that we're going to have to glaze over and say, you know, pigs are the best we can do, probably pretty close, close to humans. Uh, I, I think the main point to make, as you say, is that if you cook or you have sprouted or, you know, legumes, or you prepare them as you would in a, in a food, then the digestibility issue gets closer. In other words, it's not as, as big as it would be for the raw food, and it does get closer. And there are some studies showing that that's the case. And, 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 and I think, you know, when we're going to talk about human nutrition, we need to look at the method of preparation. And the studies that have been done, there's not a lot of them, I'll admit that, um, have, have been done with local preparation methods. So if you look in these food insecure regions, but they do have access to say, you know, lentils or beans or peas or something like that as a legume. And they generally have figured out, uh, which I always think is fascinating. How did everybody figure out grains and legumes paired together? Um, that they eat it with some type of grain and things tend to go better. Um, the difference is smaller. It's still there, but it's 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 smaller and, mm-hmm. versus the raw form. So I, I, I agree that on paper and, and a lot of the scores that you get out there that you can see are based on raw foods that are put through individually. And so they don't have as great a bearing on human nutrition as you would when you mm-hmm. say, uh, you know, you prepare these things as people usually do or would. And, and, and you know, that's a local cultural phenomenon some some people sort of glaze over that and say oh it's not important but you know in certain regions of the world you just don't prepare legumes in this way you you always cook them you always you know so that will be more relevant in terms of the study and the differences do get smaller for sure be interesting to see if we uh we get some more data from that model that you just spoke about that sounds pretty fascinating yeah, this artificial stomach, it's called a Tim, and without going into it, is there's probably, you know, there's not too many of them around or not too many of them that are used on a regular basis. The people who do use them are busy sort of trying to churn through as many, you know, pardon the pun, uh, mixed diet sort of combinations as possible. But the, the way the system is set up is that even with DIAS, which is ostensibly the best system, mm-hmm. It's not even universally adopted. In fact, there's nobody out there that uses it to grade food. In Canada, we don't even use the PD cast. We still we go back to sort of a crude nitrogen utilization index, and so and 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 countries are all kind of over the place. So again, it, its relevance is interesting, uh, if nothing for other than having an academic discussion about proteins, or in children or infant nutrition, where I do think it is important. Or in food insecure regions. In Western societies, it's, you know, people compensate for 
poorer, if that's the right way to say it, quality proteins by just eating more protein. Mm-hmm. It's, 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 it's almost a non-issue. So, you know, I chuckle inside when I see some of these debates on, on Twitter. <laughs> can we, just to tie off on this, uh, can we briefly talk about the, the sort of impact of what's described as a limiting amino acid in, in the, in the hmm. DS4? Because yeah. I think that's also interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think the concept's really, it's pretty easy to understand if you think there's 20 amino acids, all 20 of them are bricks that need to get put in a wall. Uh, Nine of them we have to get in by, you know, our diet, the other 11 we can make ourselves. And one of them in a food, in a particular food, so let's say you're, you know, you're stuck on a desert island and you're, you're stuck eating this one food. And the rate limiting amino acid is, is, you know, the, the amino acid that's provided in the lowest amount below what we think is, is you know, optimal for mm-hmm. a, a person to make the wall as fast as they could and, and when they could and everything. And so, you know, the, the, the two that are sort of globally limiting, the one is uh, in grains is, is lysine. And, you know, on a, on a global basis, that is the limiting amino acid for, mm-hmm. for growth in particular. Uh, and the other amino acids are sulfur-containing amino acids, methionine and cysteine. And, you know, that's the complementation that occurs when you get legumes and grains together is that you, one has low lysine, the other has low methionine. You eat them together and it, it becomes a non-issue. So it's really the the brick that, you know, so if there's people passing bricks up and then somebody says, where's this brick? And you go, oh, like, sorry, man, we don't have that stuff. And then all of a sudden everything slows down because you got to wait for that brick. And so if you don't supply the brick, then the rest of the wall can't be made because the, the, the wall doesn't, you know, you can't, you, you don't, you never have a hole in the wall, so to speak. So it's, it, it's the limited amino acid. So to, to summarize that, essentially within the DS kind of framework, a, a protein would get a lower score if there was a certain amino acid that it contained at such a quantity where if you were to consume just that food for all of your total protein and, and calories, you would have insufficient amounts of that particular essential amino acid uh, based on what your body requires, yeah. which, is, exactly. which is overcome yeah. through eating a, a diet where there is, or can be overcome through eating a diet where there is you know, modest diversity. Yeah, and, and I think that that's, you know, it speaks to the point of, you know, protein complementation is such a global practice that, you know, people who subsisted where animals were either, they weren't killed for religious reasons or they weren't killed because you didn't have many of them. Uh, and why would you kill a cow? Because it gives you milk and, they, and that was a good source of protein. Um, you only had one cow, you know, uh, or you didn't kill the animal because it need, you needed to pull a plow, for example, and, and, you know, the meat would, yeah, that's be a great idea, but then we can't, we can't mm-hmm. farm. So when you look at like all over the world, how is it that everybody in those cultures has figured out that, you know, grains and legumes paired together are good and it can only be through natural selection and sort of survival that, you know, grain eaters, you know, didn't like their legumes, they mm-hmm. died. And or legume eaters, the same thing. So it it's it, it shows you, you know, when you talk about diversity, I mean, all you need is the green and legume, right? It's so it's probably the issue of diversity and westernized or, you know, whatever you want to call it, societies is uh 
it, it's a non-issue. Like these, these concepts that you hear on social media about, you know, vegans and protein, like it's, it's pretty hard for me to understand. I, I mean, don't get me wrong. There are people who make some poor choices dietarily who are vegans, but um, the same is true of other omnivores yeah, sure. and uh, other people. There's, so there's plenty of vegan junk food out there. That's for sure. Uh, no, I think yeah, that's, yeah, I think yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. that's super clarifying. Uh, you know, I often see the DS being used online uh, and there's usually a kind of a list from highest to lowest. And I'm not sure people fully appreciate that limiting amino acid piece in there that goes into that score, which is overcome through a, a diet with diversity. So I think you've given some, some great context there. If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, InsideTracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone, before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash livingproof to download your zero-cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash livingproof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. Let's perhaps change gears a, a little bit. I know that you were part of a international Olympic committee 
uh, consensus statement. I think it was 2019 or 2018 published in the British uh, Journal of Sports Medicine. Can you share a little bit uh, about how this paper came about uh, on supplements and what the process looked like to determine what supplements would be recommended within the statement? Yeah. um, Well, the first thing uh, to appreciate is that the IOC is located in uh, Lausanne in Switzerland. So uh, I get to spend five days in Lausanne, and if you've ever been there, it's not a bad place to spend five days, mm-hmm. and with good good friends, good company, and and good chat around uh, science and supplements. I mean, uh, so so the process was literally that uh, prior to that the issuance of that position stand, the IOC would counsel athletes to avoid supplements at at all costs. Like they don't work. There's no evidence, and you know you should avoid them. Uh, the problems begin when, of course, athletes are taking them and with the belief that they're giving them a strategic advantage or edge or that sort of thing. Uh, and frequently, uh, as a result, they would fail a doping test. And that's problematic for the athlete. It's, you know, it's so, but the offense, you know, that everybody goes, well, it's not the athlete's fault. The offense is having the substance that's banned in your body. It's, it doesn't matter how it got there. That's, you know, basically the, the rule. And um, it was a lot of pushback against the IOC to say, we need to have a position on this or you need to have a position on this because athletes are taking these things, but it needs to be an evidence-based position. In other words, you know, out of the multitude of supplements that are out there, uh, let's get some experts together. Let's sit down, let's talk and give these things a grade and say, what works, what doesn't? And is there a decision tree that you could flow through to decide you know, this supplement, I might try this because, or I might not try this because, and et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, you get together in Lausanne, there's people from uh, all kinds of different, um, you know, sporting environments and uh, scientists and WADA is there watching as well, uh, which is eerie because they're very anti-supplement. Mm-hmm. They, I mean, they're just all about doping. And so they're, you know, they're watchful. Yeah group and the IOC officials in lots of, so it was, you know, the, the conference room where there was about 40 plus people in there when we were going through that process. Um, really interesting, uh, really satisfying in terms of being there and, and, and humbling as well. I mean, it was a great, there were a lot of fantastic people there and it was, was awesome to be part of it. Um, that was the start of what then was about a year and a half to two year process to, to come up with that paper. And there were about eight or nine of us that were part of the writing group uh, that took that on. And all I'll say is uh, it was super difficult and it was 39 different sort of drafts from, from start to finish. And the only reason I know that is that I was curating the I, I, I so the figures in there. I'll put my hand up and say I, I drew those figures <laughs> and I revised them. I don't know how many times. There was a guy. He's actually he was a Canadian guy. I won't, I won't call him out by name, but he was a water representative. And he and I went back and forth so many times over the decision trees that are in there. But you know, you, you boil all of that down and everything that's out there, and you say what gives you an A plus grade. And so we we're down to. Uh, yeah, sodium bicarbonate works, you know, caffeine works, creatine works, uh, sports drinks, small edge, but they work, protein, small edge, but it does something, 
And then the B list were sort of things like uh, beta alanine was was on there, nitrates um, from various sources. And then after that, things drop off fairly quickly, and you have to grade things, you know, according to uh, an evidence based framework. And so we couldn't make statements around lots of different cool. things. You know, I mean, pretty much everything else. Do you do you have a sense just to kind of contextualize this before we dig into a, a few of those examples there? Uh, how important supplements are. If you have everything else addressed, your diet, training, sleep, and recovery, which we, we spoke about last episode and the importance of that, how, how much better can someone's performance get through supplementation? And I, I realize that might be a, a difficult question, but where is it in the priority list? Yeah, I think the the important point to make is there's a big difference between, you know, we, we, we do a lot of studies in, I'll call them recreationally active or even, you know, fairly decent, quote unquote, athletes at the university varsity level. Um, and we think that those are applicable to high level elite sport athletes. And so elite sport athletes are rarely, and I mean, really rarely, if ever studied. So it's hard for me to answer the question based on the science that we generate. We like to think that we answer that question, uh, but only when the elites get a hold of them and do sort of a series of N of one experiments, do you get any sense for how they work with those athletes? So I'll I'll just say this is that, um, uh, you know, lots of analogies and I've used many of them. Uh, A lot of people claim that they got them first or whatever, but if you're making a sundae, and this is everybody's favorite, and you scoop in the ice cream and you put the bananas on and you put the whipped cream on, then supplements are either the cherry or the sprinkles. I don't know. Like, mm-hmm. So in other words, you know, the, the bulk of the sundae is already there. Uh, that's your training. That's your recovery. That's, you know, you picked your mom and dad wisely. So you got some pretty good genes for, <laughs> you name it, sprinting or running mm-hmm. or something like that. Um and you got your sleep right and you got everything, you know, all queued up to, you know, and you, you know, you came to the Olympic village with your pillow. And that was important because you slept better with your pillow as opposed to the village pillow. You know, all, mm-hmm. you know, how many different tiny things can you add and everything came together on the day and you win the medal or, you know, something like that. Or you, at least maybe you get a personal best. Then, you know, how do you parse out what the supplement is worth? And we look for changes that we see in scientific studies that are always, in my opinion, massively magnified compared to what they would be in elite athletes. So let's just say that I think the biggest thing that they give to a lot of elite athletes is probably a psychological edge, Mm -hmm. feeling that I'm doing something that is the same as my opponent, or maybe he or she is not. Mm -hmm. And so I've got a little bit of an advantage and, um, you know, but outside of that, yeah, there's probably your, it's, it's kind of that analogy I like to say is like squeezing the water out of the cloth, right? So, you know, the first you're training and the water's coming out and you're like, hey, this is awesome. And then the last little part, you're, you're trying to squeeze that last drop. That's maybe where the supplements are to get that last little twist out. And, but I'm not so sure whether that doesn't overlap as much with, you know what? I feel, I feel good, man. I'm like, I'm, I'm there. And, you know, so you're in the zone, everything happens great on the day and and you you know i guess that's gold medal blah blah blah. yeah i guess that's where we need some uh placebo 
controlled trials in elite athletes, but as you say, it's, it's, it's difficult. Really tough to do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Placebo, nocebo, like it's, it's, it's extraordinarily uh, difficult. And this is, you know, it sort of plagues the, the supplement performance literature as well as, you know, there's been this big trend towards categorizing people as responders versus non-responders. And, you know, a lot of people are asking and saying, is, is that real? Because the responder to me means like every time I give you caffeine, you respond the same. And I don't know if even, I don't know that we know even that, right? Mm -hmm. So, but, but athletes, uh, when I've talked to them and, and I've had the pleasure of hanging around with a few, um, everything is a case study. They're, sure. you know, some of them, they do certain things and then they change it. And, you know, so it's, you try it, but you always try it in training and it's like, yeah, that didn't work or it worked or, you know, okay, so let's try it again. And if it's a repeat, yeah, I like that. I, I feel something. I, I feel better than, than you put it into competition. And I'm sure, or at least from my experience, there, there seems to be some sort of potentially genetic or microbiome differences that may affect how, how well someone responds to something like caffeine. Uh, and, and also yeah. what are you consuming it with? Are you having it on an empty stomach or are you having it with carbohydrates? Yeah. Yeah. Probably, you know, I don't know how many confounding variables that you'd have to control. Uh, yeah. Genetic susceptibility. We, we know it exists with drugs. You know, you give a hundred people who have high blood pressure, uh, an antihypertensive drug, uh, 60 people lower their blood pressure, 30 people, it doesn't change. And uh, unfortunate 10 people, it goes in the opposite direction. And, you know, if, if, if that's the case with a, with a drug, why are we surprised when a compound that is working in similar ways has the same sort of distribution? So, you know, uh, yeah. And then your microbiome. And then that changes when you do a competition, a different span, you know, and all kinds of things. So, yeah, it's, it's hard to work. We're, we're, we're complex, yeah. man. We're, we've got a lot of things going on. And so, uh, yeah, it works in training. And then you take it in competition instead of it being ergogenic you you have a shitty day and it and, and it feels like hell and you get a stomach upset and gi issues and then it's not a great experience right what, what so. did you find for for caffeine in terms of what would the when it does seem to work what are the the kind of proposed <laughs> mechanisms that maybe underpin that and when when we're talking about performance what type of performance would caffeine be uh good for yeah, I mean, caffeine is is sort of the the go to. I have a friend, uh, John Hawley, who's a really really well established researcher in Australia, and uh, he would say that you know whatever we have that that enhances performance, first I got to put it up against caffeine because caffeine always always works in you know quotation marks. <laughs> I think um, you know Nancy Guest, who you would know, would argue that uh, genetic. Uh, predisposition to either metabolize caffeine rapidly or not might affect the performance outcome. Uh, there's a bunch of different theories. The predominant one now is that, that there's some sort of centrally acting uh, mechanism through an adenosine receptor so that you feel um, what we all crave with caffeine is you're more alert, uh, you're ready to go, and hopefully that gets you to sort of that peak on the what we call the inverted U. You know, you're you're maximally aroused and stimulated, ready to go, but not so far over the top mm. that you, you know, lose the lose the edge, so to speak. Um, and, and I do think that it's probably, 
it, it'd be hard for me to disagree that it enhances, you know, sprint performance or re- repeat sprint performance in particular. Um, it even enhances long-term endurance performance, and there are various other theories beyond essentially acting uh, for that. Um, you should ingest it before as a general rule, but lots of people in prolonged races, marathons, etc., uh, also favor it during as well. So, uh, and I think most of the work has been done, and I, you know, hat tip to Louise Burke and John and, you know, people in, a, in, a, in Australia in particular uh, for their great work on this. And it, it, it's um, almost without fail, although not everybody's the same, it's going to do something for just about everybody, I think. If I recall correctly, with regards to endurance and consumption during was that where, within the consensus statement, you you mentioned perhaps the benefit of co-consuming it with carbohydrates? Yeah, yeah. It, it's odd that the, the the sort of discovery, quote unquote, of that is that um, you know you go back about twenty plus years, even longer, maybe thirty plus years, to when uh, athletes would say that at a certain point in a marathon, or they would drink, you know defizzed or, or flat Coke, Coca-Cola. And, you know, and it's like they, they thought it was a carbohydrate phenomenon that they were getting this boost in performance. But there's, you know, a little amount of uh, caffeine in Coca-Cola as well, which is probably right around the threshold to give you like a little bit of a, you know, a brain boost, quote unquote. You know, people have got pretty sophisticated yeah. now with caffeine containing gels and that sort of thing. But, uh, yeah, it's uh, definitely carbs, I mean, uh, are in there. And uh, uh, mm. caffeine appears to give you the kick too. So yeah, I'm, for sure. I'm chuckling because the the Australian Open, uh, which of course you'll be familiar with, the the tennis Grand Slam. Yeah, of course. And there's an Australian yeah. Australian player, Nick Kyrgios, who is uh, quite renowned for. Yeah, I, would, I know Nick. Oh, well, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Oh, I don't know Nick, yeah. but I, I his reputation yeah. precedes he's, him. Let's just say, he's, yeah, yeah, he's yeah. a character and 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 gets the crowd. Yeah. Uh, up and about and he's been known for kind of in in the long uh games that he's involved in uh and i shouldn't really laugh but he he pulls out a can of pepsi and and drinks that on the the sidelines yeah, yeah. So there you go yeah and, and i mean it's it, it's got a sugar sugar content um and again people sort of say oh sugar you know and i'm like but that's still that's the fuel that drives the performance these guys have right and uh, even the fructose and glucose combination of sucrose, we now understand, is transported into your gut quicker than just, you know, uh, glucose alone. So, you know, oddly speaking, it's, you know, athletes through trial and error figure this out. The only thing that I would find odd is that if he drinks the Pepsi and it's, and it's you know, gas, sure. so it's fizzy, uh, is you tend to get, you know, you're either belching or something else after that. And so these guys would shake a bottle of Coke, take all the fizz out of it, and then drink that. And it's it's a slightly higher sucrose concentration than you would normally recommend, but some people can tolerate it very well. And it and it does have a little bit of caffeine in it too. So well, there you go. That's the uh, first recommendation on this show for a sugar sweetened beverage. <laughs> maybe don't, maybe don't try yeah. that one out at yeah, home. Yeah, it's context specific. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Uh, yeah, you, you you mentioned sodium bicarbonate, and that's an interesting yeah. one. I think folks yeah. are probably thinking, "Hang on, did did Doctor Phillips just mention baking soda?" <laughs> uh, 
And I, yeah. I, I know that there is good evidence to, to support this. I know that it's been studied for a long time. I personally, when I have it, yeah. unfortunately, I get a little bit of GI kind of distress. It doesn't work that well yeah. with me. Yeah. But perhaps you could kind of describe yeah. what the evidence is, uh, the evidence that we have that supports the use of sodium, sodium bicarbonate or, or baking soda uh, and what the mechanism is that sort of underpins that. Yeah, or, I mean, uh, yeah, it is baking soda, sodium bicarb. So um, you can you can get it in uh, obviously a, a tablet form because you probably well not about you, but uh, your parents probably took them as antacids uh, when uh, when they were popular in that form. Or you know you I mean the 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 newer or similar acting version now is beta alanine. It it, it all works by modifying intramuscular pH and so trying to prevent the decline in pH and keep you a little bit more closer to neutral where things, uh, you know, function a little bit better. Um, obviously, uh, you got to take it before the event. Uh, as you pointed out, the, the big downside is people respond really variably to it. Um, some people, it's no issues, no problem at all. It, the general doses, and I think I have this right, it's about 300 milligrams per kilo. So if you're, you know, an 80 kilo guy, it's about 24 grams of sodium bicarb um, about two hours before the event. Uh, some people, no issues at all. They take that. They just get a, you know, get a bit of a reflux, but then it's it's gone by the time the event happens. Other people like yourself, tremendous GI issues and all kinds of problems. So it's always a try it before you do it in competition um, type supplement. Works by uh, just, uh, you know, keeping your pH up just a little bit that then buffers the acidity that happens with exercise, particularly good in sort of repeated sprints, etc. Um, probably middle distance events. So I want to say anything probably over about uh, 3,000 to 5,000 meters, you're not going to notice it as much. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm, I'm sure there are athletes doing, say, doing the 10,000 meters, for example, that might be trying it or whatever. But um yeah, it's kind of old school now, not quite as cool. So beta alanine is the new uh, way of getting, uh, you know, sort of a buffering capacity in your muscle. Um, I think by now uh, we could probably move that supplement up to sort of A-grade evidence, um, beta alanine that is. And, you know, it's, it's more of a chronic digestion. It goes into your muscle, forms a compound called carnosine that is also mm -hmm. buffering and uh, yeah, pretty good body of literature suggesting that it's uh, ergogenic for performance for sure. So carnosine, is that uh, sort of, does that act as a, an antioxidant? Is that kind of mopping up free radicals or, or what's the, the sort of mechanism there? Yeah, actually, it's it has a, a number of residues, a number of different amino acids that are actually buffering in nature. Um and you know, without going into the science too much, is that it acts as a it acts as a buffer. It's an intracellular buffer, so it's not as much antioxidative. Although a lot of these things sort of may act in that manner as well when you have some of them in the muscle, um, but they uh, they kind of soak up the hydrogen ions, prevent the decline in pH, and mm -hmm. it may be just enough to enhance your performance. Most of the trials where they've seen performance enhancing effects in that uh, with that supplement are the sort of middle distance. So, you know, I say somewhere from sort of, you know, two to maybe eight to 10 minutes tops in terms of uh, duration. So pretty high intensity type events where small differences in pH might make a, a bigger difference in performance. 
And I know for, for me, and, and I think you might have uh, written this in the paper or you've, you've said it somewhere, but this is the supplement that can give you some of the tingling. And I find that if you yeah. separate your, your dose, if you kind of split that dose as opposed to having it all mm. in one, it, it can yeah. uh, reduce those symptoms for people that respond in that way. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it, it does. It's sort of... Um, uh, there's there's various forms of it. Uh, there's a form that I, I, I want to. I'm not sure of the supplement company that makes it, but I think Nestle owns the the, the rights to it. But it's a slow acting beta alanine. Mm-hmm. You don't get that sort of uh, pins and needles type feeling. A lot of people think that's cool. Uh, like I don't know sure. about you. I I don't like it. Yeah. I don't think you find it particularly pleasant. Um, but I have an an older son who think he, for him that's like part of the the shtick he goes i can feel it working and then i'm like it's you know okay fair enough um and and when people can perceive things like that but it's like caffeine mm-hmm. as soon as you take it you sort of get that you know wow i feel that and people respond to that it doesn't it almost doesn't matter what it does mm-hmm. but you get a psychological yeah there's something to this and so mm-hmm. but as you say you divide up the doses or you get a slow form uh, and you don't get that sort of pins and needles type uh, um, yeah. effect, yeah. Yeah, that would be a fun trial to set up to try and find a placebo that also gives the tingling, but it doesn't well, have the active compound. That's, that's funny, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> uh, and and you mentioned before uh, dosage, and I'll I'll just remind everyone. I'll put the link to this paper into the show notes. It's got beautiful tables in there that has a summary of all the dosages that you can kind of. Uh, work through it's got two beautiful flow diagrams if then and you know so if you, those are the ones to look for because i drew those eight different drafts yeah, no you you guys <laughs> you, you did a great job uh nitrates are, are kind of i guess in some ways the new kid on the block they're very popular mm-hmm. uh you yep. can uh you can find beetroot powders and all sorts of stuff out there Tell me, tell me about the research that uh, has been conducted on, on nitrates and the type of benefit that, that perhaps someone could experience if they supplemented with them. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Nitrates are, you, you call it the new kid on the block. And I think now we're beginning to realize that um, some of the antihypertensive effects of dietary approaches, like very plant, uh, vegetable, and, and fruit-based approaches like mm-hmm. DASH, for example, um, probably, you know, the most widely regarded and healthiest diet, et cetera, et cetera, or Mediterranean-style diets, um, some of the blood pressure-lowering effects that, that are mediated in those diets actually may be through nitrates. So we're beginning to appreciate there's a, there's a chronic connection. So the long and short is, you know, uh, vegetables that are grown in, in nitrate-rich soil. So if you grow beetroots on nitrate-poor soil, the beet juice that you get from them actually it doesn't work that well, so go figure. Um, so it's it's more of a quality of the soil. Um, it, you you ingest these things, and there's bacteria that are in your mouth that actually uh, convert this to nitrite, and then it gets converted in your in your stomach in the stomach acid to uh, nitric oxide, and and that's the active molecule uh, that results in vasodilation and um, can then uh, enhance performance and there's some evidence to suggest that it improves mitochondrial bioenergetics and the mechanism of that i'm not exactly sure on but it it could increase blood flow um and 
you know, the beet shots are, are one way of doing it. Uh, you used to be used to have to drink a lot of beet juice and that created some GI issues, but now they've got it down to a small shot. Uh, here's my, here's my tidbit of, of, and I think it's a missed marketing opportunity. And I don't know, I think in, in Australia, you call, I would call it here, we would call it mm. arugula, but you guys would call it rocket, call it rocket, right? That's right. Yeah, right. So in the UK, it's called rocket and the highest nitrate content per hundred grams is in, is in rocket, but arugula has got this sort of mm. spicy edge to it. But I, I was thinking I was saying this to Andy Jones, who is the, he's yeah. like, you know, Mr. Beetroot, so to speak. I said, mate, yeah, I said, you missed an opportunity. You could have branded this, this supplement that had this spicy mm-hmm. taste to it. And it gave you this edge and it was rocket. And like, it, you know, and he goes, yeah, but it's arugula in North America. I said, that's just, a, it rockets the mm-hmm. trade name, you know? Mm-hmm. Anyway, so uh, yeah, it, it does a little bit better yeah, than beetroot. There's but, something uh, in that rocket fuel. That's uh, a... <laughs> yeah, well, it's said, you know, or, or golden beetroots is the other one. I said, you know, it should be like beet mm. gold, you know, yeah. and everything. But it just, it never, he never ran with it. I don't know what happened to it, but uh, I have these great mm. marketing ideas that nobody ever yeah. takes. Well, I'm sure there's, there's some, <laughs> there's some entrepreneurs yeah. out there listening and uh, hopefully that. Hopefully. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the bottom line is, is that, you know, any sort of, um, mashed up and concentrated vegetable juice that had that's that's grown in vegetables in nitrate rich soil uh, would have this effect. The only the, the interesting part is is if you and I know this is sort of a dentition thing. If you use mouthwash and the mouthwash kills the bacteria that are you need for brushing your teeth is fine. I'm not saying don't brush your teeth, but the mouthwash kills all of the bacteria that you need for that transition. So brushing. Good mouthwash over obsession with oral hygiene, probably not necessary and gets rid of the uh, performance enhancing effects. So eat nitrates or eat vegetables in nitrate rich that are grown in nitrate rich soil. Rocket is a good choice. Don't, Don't use, use mouthwash. mouthwash. And, and for some people, you get a performance enhancing effect. to look effect. after that oral microbiome. Uh. <laughs> and like everything else, right? All the other microbiomes that we, all these biomes that, you know, years past, we were like, what, what the hell, you know? So, uh, but now we're learning it's a, you know, it's a part of us that probably gives us and imbues upon us all kinds of different, uh, you know, benefits that we never knew were, were because of something else that lived inside us. So Very cool. pretty interesting. Uh, perhaps one of the most studied that you mentioned is creatine. And I think a lot of people yeah. will have heard this. Many may have uh, used it themselves. My understanding is that our our body uh, makes creatine in the liver and kidneys from glycine, uh, arginine, and I think uh, methionine, uh, some combination. Um, how much does our body yep. make? And in your view, does our body make an optimal amount if we're talking about performance or is creatine via uh, our diet or through supplementation a, a better way to achieve optimal levels? Yeah, so you you got you got the three amino acids bang on. You're you're spot on there. A plus. Um, we make about a gram to a gram and a half a day, depending on how big you are. It's it's stored almost exclusively inside our muscle. Um, it's stored as pre-creatine or as its phosphorylated form, phosphocreatine, which we we all know is a high intensity fuel sort of buffer, if you like. It, you know, not much of it there, but it's the sprinter's fuel, so to speak. Um, 
when you supplement with this stuff, and so you take creatine, uh, use lots of different protocols, but let's just say if you take, you know, five grams a day for a week, or you take 10 grams a day for about three or four days, uh, then you begin to supersaturate your muscles. So your muscle creatine content goes up, and so does your muscle phosphocreatine content. Again, uh, we know that there's a phenomenon of response, non-response. So some people are great at storing creatine. Other people, yeah. Uh, the traditional hallmark, uh, because it's what we call an osmolite as well. So when you put, put more of the stuff inside your inside your muscle, it draws some water in with it. So your muscles tend to swell. Um, all the methods we have to, to look at muscle size would call that an increase in muscle mass because they're not sensitive enough to understand muscle water that's in there. So people get bigger. They, they put on, you know, anywhere from, it could be a half a kilo, so about a pound, to uh, anywhere up to, say, two kilos. Um, and that's a pretty substantial water weight gain, uh, which some athletes don't like. Some athletes have no issue with. If you're somebody going to the gym and your muscles swell a little bit and you you look and feel bigger, uh, that's probably great. <laughs> um, so I, I think a lot of people probably get close to what your body says, you know, this is all I need to produce. The supplement just gives you a little bit of an edge on that. Vegetarians uh, as a group uh, and vegans in particular are tend to have lower creatine stores. And, it, and I don't know whether that's a, an amino acid supply issue um, more than anything else. And so uh, a lot of vegetarians or vegans can can really amp up their creatine stores by taking sure. the supplement. Do you think that could also be because there is some creatine in animal food? Yeah, no, that's true too. It, it, I mean, uh, probably the, the, the group of people in the world that have the highest you know, daily creatine intake of the Scandinavians who eat a lot of uh, fish and in particular herring, which is just rife with, with creatine. So yeah, they're getting a lot of dietary creatine as well and probably stocking some of that away. Um, it's, it's hard to get up in, in, in terms of say supplement levels to say, you know, five grams worth of creatine through dietary uh, intakes. Although there are some some people out there that are on carnivore diets they're probably pretty close mm -hmm. yeah at what cost <laughs> I, well you know i'm just i, I just lay it out there you know yeah, you, you, yeah. it's not the way i choose to. Um, however just, however you know to, I'm, so. just, I'm just having fun uh is this yeah. a, a supplement that that you need to cycle or can you just take this five grams a day ongoing yeah, I, so I, I don't think you need to cycle it. Uh, I mean, I'll be—I'll I'll tell you my personal regime. I do take it on and off, but there are times when I, I stop taking it. Um, it, it. Like more than anything, I just—I I worry far less about supplements now because I'm—I'm I'm not really competing with anybody. So, mm -hmm. um, but you know, the bottom line is, I think you could probably safely maintain your—you know—your enhanced phosphocreatine levels by dropping down to as low as three grams a day. Um, everything where we've given people creatine and seen the spillover in their urine, which is where it goes if you get too much, um, suggests that, you know, when you're at three grams, which is twice what even the biggest person would normally make, um, you can take that type of dose and, and keep levels up in a higher range. 
And the, the common creatine that I think most people will be familiar with is creatine monohydrate. But sometimes you do see uh, a fancy new type of creatine and and perhaps some claims about absorption. Is there evidence to suggest that you should buy anything other than creatine monohydrate? No. Okay. No, there's nothing out there like creatine nitrate or creatine, you know, you you add another, you know, hyphenated form on the end and there have been plenty of them. Um, Yeah, like monohydrate is the... It's been out there for, you know, close to sort of 30 plus years now, uh, well studied, uh, works very well. You can get a generic no-name crit monohydrate at Costco or, you know, some other great big grocery storage. And it's just as good as, uh, as the stuff, the fancy dance stuff. So I don't see any need to, uh, to, to go to anything other than monohydrate, to be honest with you. Now, something that I haven't asked you that I have been specifically asked about creatine is all of these supplements we're talking about, the, the evidence is mostly in adults. What about if we're, we're talking about a, an athlete who is, say, 13, 14, 15, they're under the age of 16. Mm-hmm. Is there any evidence to support their use at that age? So uh, I have three sons, all who went through, you know, they played various sports and um, every now and again, when they thought I was cool enough, they would say, hey, dad, you know, and creatine was usually the first one they asked about because it works and, you know, it it gains a reputation. Uh, I always encouraged them to, that there were lots of other things that they could do before they sort of decided that supplements were the answer to, you know, I I, I need to get to the next level. you know, I'm, I'm, I, I do work with some younger athletes and I, we always do a training compliance grid. Um, if we did a sleep grid, it'd be another matter altogether. Um, but I, when people say I'm not getting back what I think I'm putting in, I say, okay, show me your training compliance grid. And if it's anything below, you know, 75%, I'm like, you just got to come to training more often. You got to, you know, you got to be in the gym. You got to, you know, you got to work with your coach. And and that's the commitment that will give you the, the extra edge as opposed to I'm going to get a supplement that's going to push me up to, you know, the, the 95% sort of zone. Uh, kids don't sleep a, a lot. <laughs> Actually, that's not true. They sleep a lot, but in the wrong times of the day and they watch screens like all the time now, which we now know does a big, you know, number on your sleep quality and everything else that I think those are some things that you know, young athletes could dial in a little bit better before I would say, okay, you know, give creatine a try. You're right. I, I, I'm not comfortable, you know, saying to kids where, you know, people are still growing where, you know, this is the thing that you need. I know a lot of people would, would poo poo my attitude, but I'll be honest is that I, I think that, uh, you know, kids need to learn what it means to, to dial in trade. Once you get training really dialed in and sleep, and then you say nutrition, and then at some level, it's sort of like, you know, I, and I mean, let's be honest, there are 13, 14, 15, 16-year-olds who are world-class competitors in, in, in a number of sports. And for those kids, maybe it is uh, a supplement that you would try, but for generic day-to-day kids that I've run into, I, I try and turn them away from that for as long as possible until they're an adult, quote-unquote, at least in age. <laughs> And then say, okay, you know, do your here, here's the, here are the facts and try it and see what you think. Uh, most of them don't have a lot of money in their pocket, which is where I think a lot of these supplements really hurt you. So uh, I always say, 
how much money do you have in your pocket and, and try and get play the economic yeah. game uh, before I do anything else. Very good. Uh, I understand that there's some interesting research looking at omega-3s, DHA, EPA, supplementation, yeah. uh, muscle mass, and strength. How would you summarize the, the body of research looking at that to date? And what's the proposed mechanism here by which omega-3s can influence muscle mass and strength? Yeah. I, so I had a postdoc in my lab for four years, a guy named Chris McGlory. He's now gone on. He's an assistant professor at Queen's University. Um, came from the UK and then we we corrupted him and he, he took out his permanent residency here in Canada. So um, uh, here for the long haul. And, and Chris was the guy that he, he kind of got me into this. It was his thing that he brought into the lab. I sort of thought, you know what, I've, I've seen some effects with these and heart health and a few other things and cognitive function, et cetera, et cetera. The long and short is that we, I saw some things that impressed me as a scientist. It's, it's odd to be surprised by um, in science. Like you kind of have an idea what's going on. We, we gave these to some young women uh, before they put a knee brace on their leg for two weeks. Usually in two weeks, you'd lose about five to 6% of your muscle mass in terms of cross-sectional area. And when the women who took the high dose omega threes leading into that uh, lost about you know a th- two thirds no about a third of that, so it was really protective against muscle loss, which surprised me. Um, but we saw this a similar type of effect in some other studies as well. I don't know how it works. I think that the the you know and Chris would be more up on this. I think the effects of the muscle are due to the EPA, the icosapentaenoic acid. And their effects on the nerve or the neural end of things with the DHA, which is maybe where some of the central neuroprotective effects of these fatty acids lives. Um, I think from an anabolic perspective, it's easier or it has been easier to show this in older people. So people who are compromised to start out with and so maybe have a little bit more to gain. Um, and there I'd say it's about a sort of a B, B plus type signal for enhancing muscle gains. In younger people, it's a much smaller signal because I, I think they've got a lot of other things that they can tap out before the omega-3s begin to exert their effect. Going in the opposite direction is an anti-catabolic or an anti-atrophy agent. Um, it, it looks pretty promising and um, some more work to be done there. Uh, Stuart Gray, who is a Scottish researcher as well, has done some great work in this area and a number of other groups. Um I don't have an issue with with recommending uh, omega three supplements. You kind of do have to do the supplements though, uh, because the doses of these long chains that we gave people were were pretty high. And so I know every I like fish. I love fish, and I eat a lot of fish. But frankly, I can't eat that much fish. <laughs> so uh, you do have to take it as a supplemental. Yeah. Form. So so the dose you used was that around two two to three grams. Yeah, it was about a gram and a half okay. each of the EPA and DHA, so it's about three grams yeah, a day. that's a lot, because I think, I think I calculated that two pieces of fatty fish, like salmon a week, is equivalent to having yeah. one gram a day of combined EPA and DHA. Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, like I said, I, I like yeah. fish as, as much or maybe more than the next guy, but uh, so you kind of have to go to these these. You know, it, it, you know, the natural experiment was always to say, why is it that Inuit uh, who live in the north in Canada 
and survive exclusively on marine fat have rates of heart disease that are, you know, X number of percent, twofold lower. Um, and, and all they're eating all day long is marine animal um, fat that is rich in these. So, so they're an extreme example. Unfortunately, they also have a rate of stroke that is, you know, two to three times higher. That So there's, there's, there's the, the, the teeter-totter and the seesaw game to be played around what is good and what is bad. But I take an omega-3 supplement. I just, I, I'm pretty diligent about uh, I pay more for a supplement that guarantees that it's not oxidized. Mm-hmm. And, we'll, and we'll present a certificate of analysis on that. Okay. So, so I don't know a lot of people are, what's that? And it's just, you know, if you get some of these things in a pill – they, they go in an oxidized form and, and that may actually not mm-hmm. be good for you. It may actually be bad for you as well. So a lot of uh, commercially available pills, you just have to check to see whether it says mm-hmm. it's a non-oxidized yeah. uh, supplement. Good advice. And make sure you store them correctly as well. Uh, yeah. Let's change gears a little here. You, you mentioned uh, older people then, and I want to kind of bring this back towards anabolic resistance. But before we get right into that, what are the, the major hormones that affect synthesis of new muscle and, and affect our ability to promote or increase strength? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, everybody says it's testosterone, right? And, and I don't think I, you know, I wouldn't disagree um, based on, uh, well, clinical evidence as well as uh, anecdotal evidence and, uh, you know, athlete performance evidence of, uh Athletes that have taken uh, testosterone, uh, both men and women, obviously with women has a very, very potent effect if, because they're, you know, about tenfold lower than, than men. Um, but, it, you know, from a relative percentage of what muscle women can gain, they can gain, relatively speaking, the same as men compared to, you know, what the muscle they had to start with is. But uh, the big divergence occurs at puberty and, you know, girls who turn into women and boys who become men that they get a surge because of the testosterone. But then after that, men and women, relatively speaking, parallel each other. So it's the main driver. Uh, but clearly there are other things that are maintaining muscle mass in, mm-hmm. in women. Estrogen is one of them, which uh, I think would probably surprise a number of people to say that, you know, after menopause, women not only lose bone mass, but they actually lose muscle mass at a slightly faster rate as well. So, so, how are the how's how's testosterone actually affect, does it directly affect muscle protein synthesis or or what's the the kind of mechanism here yeah so it, you know it's a class of it, steroid hormones uh, they they move across membranes fairly easily because they're fat soluble and they bind to a receptor and they change the expression of a number of genes and then they have they exert their effect uh, that way. So yeah, it probably does enhance muscle protein synthesis to some degree. Uh, it enhances what we call satellite cell function. These are the um, cells within muscle that uh, still retain the ability to divide. And so they can renew and replenish damaged muscle cells. Um, probably lots of other processes related to growth and um, basically differentiation of uh, cells that uh, the hormone itself is enhancing to allow you to put on a little bit more muscle mass. And um, there's probably effects beyond that that have to do, I mean, there's lots of research now to show that it could affect, you know, your mental state and arousal and 
aggression, quote unquote, that uh, you would find as a an athlete in certain sports, a desirable trait, for example. So when we age and we, we spoke about anabolic resistance and my understanding is we get a, a sort of attenuated muscle protein synthesis after protein ingestion or after resistance uh, exercise. So we get mm-hmm. essentially less bang for our buck uh, as we're getting a, a bit older. Is, yeah. this, is that explained by changes in hormones? You kind of alluded to it there. Or is it nutrient utilization? Is it a combination? What, is, what do you think is underpinning that anabolic resistance? Yeah, good question. Uh, it's probably a combination of a lot of things. Hormones may be in there, but the, you know the change with hormones is a, is a chronic process. It's not really an acute thing, so it, it could be part of what's happening. I do think that it's probably related to blood flow to some degree, and so that's you know that has parallels in 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 terms of insulin resistance because that's a consequence of insulin resistance is poor blood flow as well. Um, but everything as it ages does less. doesn't matter whether you're an earthworm or a human being. Uh, so inactivity becomes part of the, you know, constellation of things that we could probably put in there um, to say that that's part of anabolic resistance. We have had occasions in the lab where we've studied, you know, protein anabolism in some older people. And you get these, uh, you know, they're, they're almost like unicorns. They show up in their mid-70s. They're not taking any medication, which is really rare for a 70-year-old, in, in, at least in North America. And um, they're taking you know, 17,000 steps a day because they either they run or they've got a dog or two dogs or five dogs or something. And uh, metabolically, they, they look like people in their 30s and 40s. Wow. You know? I mean, it's, so chronological age is, is not particularly relevant. Um, the, the, the more common or average older person, so probably on, you know, a statin or a, mm-hmm. an antihypertensive or, you know, you name it, they're usually poly, polypharmaceutically mm-hmm. medicated people. Um, it gets hard to disentangle all of this sort of, I won't call them overt clinical symptoms, like they're not diabetic, but maybe they're sort of edging towards that state. And so... You know, that's just part of aging per se, but it's, it's, you know, it's, it's hard to pull out the disease process that might be there just lurking under the mm-hmm. surface. Uh, and those are the more typical older people that we find in these studies. As much as we tried to cut down on the meds, like if we said no, statins are, we generally rule out, but if we said no to antihypertensives, we probably get, you know, for every 10 people we'd screen, mm-hmm. we get two. <laughs> So you have to be tolerant of the existence of some comorbidities, which could be playing an influence, uh, could be playing a part in, in what we're okay. seeing as well. So main tips, try and stay metabolically healthy for, for as long as you can. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, what do you- definitely. And, and I think, you know, my interpretation of that is, is be physically mm-hmm. active. And, 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 you know, I know that that's just a off the cuff corollary, but the people who come in and aren't on meds, or generally, if we give them a you know a hip worn pedometer or something, they're upwards of sort of fourteen to sixteen thousand steps a day. So they're pretty active mm-hmm. people. And I'm not saying that it's a one to one relationship, but 
it's commonly, that's what we find. What do you think about this idea? I, I sometimes come across this online where folks that are aged maybe 50 or 60 or a little bit older are using testosterone replacement therapy as a kind of strategy mm. to try and hold on to muscle and offset a decline in testosterone yeah. as, as they age. I, I see this particularly in, in males. Is that something that yeah. has been studied or you have a view on? Uh, yeah, we, I was just part of a consensus group for the American College of Sports Medicine, which updated the uh, position stand on anabolic steroid use. Uh, we had to add sort of a new wrinkle to that because in the last version of that stand, which was it was pretty old, I can't recall the year it was published, but it was at least 20 years old. Uh, now we have a lot of evidence from uh, clinical trials of of hypogonadal men that are put on testosterone. So by hypogonadal, it means they had low testosterone to start with, and they were brought into the normal range by, uh, you know, uh, testosterone replacement. In those situations, I think that it's, as long as your testosterone levels are monitored, it's uh, it's probably a net benefit. It might be a smaller, in my view, at least than uh, a lot of other people would, would believe. If you're normal testosteroneemic, in other words, you have normal testosterone levels, putting yourself on testosterone, and this is the big debate because the range of what's considered normal is fairly, is fairly wide. I think if you're up to the high end of that, um, you're probably, you don't need to have testosterone replacement therapy. I don't think it's the be-all and end-all. There's no, uh, you know, in sort of small doses, lots of little things can add up to say maybe you're, you're in a better off position. There's, there's some psychological uh, data where that, you know, people believe it uh, um, can alleviate depression. Um, I'm not convinced by that data, to be honest with you. My only concern is that the uh, one of the biggest sort of drivers of reproductive tissue cancer, and for for men over the age of forty, that's prostate mm -hmm. cancer, um, is is testosterone. And so, you know, do you put yourself at increased risk of um, prostate, you know, cancer or other reproductive tissue cancers when you take this stuff? So, I think. The risks are, you know, when they've been examined are considered to be minimal. Um, but I'm not sure I'm overly sold on the concept of a widespread use of it as an anti-aging mm -hmm. therapy. Do you se. have that range off the, the top of your head if someone was to check their testosterone I, levels? You know, I wish I did. No, I, I couldn't I couldn't pull it off can, for you right now. Or I could probably I could guess, but if I got it wrong, I get in trouble. So let's just say it's mm -hmm. wide. And there are some people who, like, I don't d disagree that, you know, if you're feeling, they call it feeling flat, like, and, you know, you have no libido and you're just, you know, down, uh, is that you can get a tremendous boost from bringing that from, you know, hypogonadal or, or low levels into normal. And, you know, there's lots of people, you go into online, they say, I had it and it was a game changer. And I don't disagree with that. It's people who are like, you know, I was feeling like I didn't, my, didn't, my muscles weren't the same and I wasn't as strong and I noticed I was getting kind of flabby around the middle. So I started taking TRT and I'm like, you know, that's, that to me is, I don't see the rationale for that. That paper that you sent me on, on anabolic resistance, uh, that you 
a sort of yeah. review that you published, I think, in 2019. I quickly flicked through it. You only mm-hmm. sent it to me a day ago. That was my fault. Uh, but there was an interesting <laughs> fact in there. You you pointed out that uh, relative to 2019, uh, when we get to 2050, there will be almost double the amount of, of people uh, who are aged over 65. And so this, it, it really yeah. does help contextualize how uh, important understanding sarcopenia is and coming up with various early ways to intervene to help people uh, maintain their muscle. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the demographic shift is, um, I was sitting here writing something today. Like I'm, I'll write the line in about 20 times a year when I'm either writing a paper or a grant to justify either, you know, this is why I'm writing this paper or this is why we need this money to do this research. And it's, uh, it's always demographically driven. And even like, so, you know, Canada only because I have the statistics right off the top of my head. I mean, there's almost 18% of the Canadian population is over 65 compared to about 13 and a half percent that are under the age of 15. And that's, you know, that flipped about, I, I remember we, we reported that in the press probably about eight years ago or something. For the first time in, in, in the history of this country, we have more people over 65 than under 15. Now it's just, you know, it's skewed even more. The fastest growing segment of, of our population is those over the age of 85. And so there, there's 12,000 centenarians in Canada, which is, you know, you're like, Gosh. You know, when you go into the card show and you can see like happy birthday on turning 100 and there's not just one card, there's a selection mm-hmm. of three or four. You're like, okay, this is a market now, you know? So uh, it's, it's highlighted in, you know, physical uh, disability is um, it's a big deal. Uh, old people go downhill really quickly when they, when they lose it. So sarcopenia is a, a major predictive risk factor for that. So Start early and prevent the decline as opposed to, say, you know, in your 70s going, you know, crap, I should be doing something. And by starting early, just to kind of recap, the, the, the major things that you'd be recommending are regular resistance training, some form of that, and, and having that protein intake at around 1.2 grams per kilogram of body weight. Absolutely. Absolutely. And when people say, when does sarcopenia start? And I'm like, I, I'm not really sure. Um, but you know, for a lot of people, it probably starts when they really start doing a lot and, and a lot less. And that could be somewhere in your thirties when your kids arrive and your jobs ramping up and everything else like that, that you find yourself sitting, sitting down most of your day. And you think like, when am I getting that stimulus to allow my muscle to recondition and grow and, you know, stay healthy and metabolically healthy as you point out. And, so it probably starts in earnest for some people much sooner than we think. Well, Stuart, pleasure having you back on today. This has been very, very insightful again. Before we, we, we wrap up, one final question. I'm, I'm interested in, in what you're currently researching or, or working on. I know that your, your lab has oh, yeah. fired, fired back up, I understand. <laughs> do, do you have any... Uh, yes. exciting studies in the works that people can can kind of look forward to? Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we have a few. Um, I have two students that are working on, we, we, we've done a bunch of resistance training studies and, and we've not done enough work in, you know, full culpability in this one uh, in women. Um, you can compare the number of resistance training studies and the number that are done with, you know, men and women or women alone. It's It's a 
small fraction. And the, the, you know, the real question is, you know, do women respond mm-hmm. as well as men? And from a relative percentage, gain muscle and strength and everything, they, they do. Um, they just start out at a lower level. So, but we'd like to understand then if that's the case, why is it, you know, if testosterone is such a big driver, what is it that women have that allows them to do that? So we've got a lot going on in that area. Um, we do have some work going in the protein quality uh, area um, that will look directly at the effects of, you know, predominantly or heavily based uh, plant-based diets versus uh, omnivorous diets and that sort of thing in older people. Um, you probably know this, you know, in interacting with some of the people that you do, but in Canada, uh, we've had a major shift in our, our food guidance and our, our food guide now is very plant-based and people are, you know, worrying to say, you know, is this something that older people can still live on and be okay? And so we're, we're, we're looking at that directly. Uh, we have some other work going on, um, looking at, um, young men and how resistance versus endurance exercise. And so lots of things. It's, it's actually the first time since I've been doing this. So in 20 plus years where instead of having one trial that sort of finished another one started, we've ha- we've got six studies lined up on top of each other, ready to go. And, you know, that's thanks to COVID. But, uh, so we're say we're busy is an understatement, but, um, you know, have me back in about a year and a half or mm-hmm. two years and be happy to Bring you yes. up to speed with what we it sounds what we like. Found. We will have a lot to talk about. Some interesting stuff there. I think so. I, I know I that I'm asked so. all the time uh, by usually by females. Did that study include females? And and unfortunately, it, it's you know it, it's an embarrassing truth. And uh, you know I'm I I live in a house where my wife is also a scientist. She's a major advocate for. Uh, equity in, in, in science from all kinds of standpoints, but uh, she's a cardiovascular physiologist and one of her students just completed a review looking at the uh, studies that are done in women. And it's, it's a paucity of evidence and it's just a, it's a bit of an embarrassment for, for people in science. So it's something we're looking uh, to rectify yeah, for sure. Gap to fill. All right, Stuart, thank you so much. Uh, I appreciate your time and I'll, I'll pop a link to your profile on the McMaster University website and, of course, your Twitter link for those who want to keep up to date with all of your research. Absolutely. Thank you for joining me for this episode and your interest in science-based conversation. I hope you enjoyed it and found the information covered interesting and instructive. If you did and you'd like to show your support for the show, please subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can stay up to date with new episodes and watch them in video format. Yes, the full-length videos. Please also consider subscribing to the show on the Spotify and or Apple Podcast app, wherever you enjoy listening to podcasts. You can also leave a review on Apple or Spotify. Again, a great way to support the show and make our content more discoverable for others to enjoy and learn from. If you have any comments about the episodes, suggestions for future episodes, including guests you'd like to see on the show, or questions that you'd like to have answered, please leave those in the comments section on YouTube. I myself and my team will take note of these comments when planning future episodes. Finally, the best way to support the show and receive discounts on products we love is by checking out our sponsors at theproof.com forward slash friends. Enjoy your week, stay well, and I look forward to catching you in the next episode.